Hey guys, my name is Brad. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life Church, and I want to welcome you to our online teachings. One of our core convictions as a church is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. Now, I know that for some of us, coming into a church building might be intimidating, it might be scary, and I get that. But I want you to know that there is always a place for you here at New Life and that you were made for real in-person community. We meet on Sundays in downtown Wayland. You can check out our website for more information on service times. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through his word. Love you guys. Uh, really excited to be here, excited to jump in. Uh, I have a question for you. Just as we start off, we're in a brand new series called Graves to Gardens uh, as we build up to Easter. And so my first question is this for you. Uh, who's your enemy? Who's your enemy? You may never have defined them as an enemy before in your life, but who's against you? Who, who works against you? Maybe, maybe in a couple different contexts. Who, who's against you at work? Who do you see as work? Maybe somebody else, maybe a boss, maybe a coworker, somebody that kind of makes your life miserable. Who, who's against you? Who, who's your enemy at work? Who's your enemy in your family? Uh, you know, growing up, I have a lot of hurt, a lot of brokenness that came even in my family. Uh, and there were different people I probably chose at different times or different stages in my life that I said, you would be my enemy if I defined it that way. Who, who's the enemy in your life? in your family, maybe, maybe uh, an ex-wife or an ex-husband, maybe a child, maybe a parent. Who's the enemy in your family? Who's the, neighbor, who's the neighbor enemy? Who's the person on the street that you just avoid like the plague? Who, who is your enemy in all these different contexts? As you think about it, oftentimes I think we, we don't really define them as enemies, but, but often we treat them as enemies. We treat them as obstacles. We treat them as people who are in our way. Uh, question uh, after this one I would unpack would be, uh, who is Jesus' enemy? Who is Jesus' enemy? As you track through Jesus throughout the Gospels and then kind of where we're at right now, uh, what we're going to look at today is the Friday of the cross. Uh, and so Jesus, as he carries his own cross, then he's turned over from the Jewish leaders to the Roman emperor. Uh, as Jesus is turned over and then he's about to go to the cross and be crucified, who was Jesus' enemy? That's what I want to look at. What's funny is uh, it's probably not who we think it is. And so we're, we're going to unpack, maybe to a different level, uh, some characters in the story, the Easter story, but the pre-Easter, which would be the crucifixion story. Um, we're going to unpack some characters that I've never unpacked before in a message uh, I've never preached about or taught about. And there's a good chance you maybe have never heard a sermon, particularly looking through the lens of these individuals in particular. So we're going to jump in uh, and we're going to read. This is going to be in Matthew chapter 27, uh, and it's going to start in verse 1. So it goes like this, Matthew 27, verse 1. It says, meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor. Uh, we're back up, sorry. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. So let me catch you up and let me, let me allow you into the story here if you're unfamiliar. Jesus was Jewish. Uh, so Jesus was about 33 years old. He had done ministry for about three years. He had a group of disciples and then a very significant following. They loved Jesus. This group of people loved Jesus. They thought he was the Messiah that was chosen and promised to the the Jewish people for thousands of years leading up to it. God had promised all throughout the Old Testament, I'm going to send a Messiah. I'm going to send a Messiah. I'm going to send a Messiah. And what they thought was the Messiah, who was Jesus, but they thought their Messiah, the one they anticipated, was one that was going to wreak havoc on their enemies. They thought the Messiah that would come in would, would restore the Jews' rightful spot as leaders or rulers over their known world. And so one of the biggest obstacles for the Jews was the Romans. 
Jews and Romans hated one another to a very significant level. The Romans had all of the power. They had all of the authority. They had all of the wealth. They, all, they had all of the, the military power. I mean, the Romans were a brutal, brutal dominion over the Jews. And so when Jesus came along, Jesus started introducing, hey, uh, you know, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. And, he, and it was, he was looking at himself without saying, I am he. But a bunch of people started thinking, maybe he's the one that's going to wreak havoc on our enemies. Maybe he's the one that's going to put us back in a rightful spot. Maybe he's the one that is going to destroy and obliterate any enemy that stands in our way. What's an enemy? I looked this up. I just wanted to define it. Uh, An enemy, this is what the dictionary describes as an enemy. A person who is actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. So the Jews said, hey, the Romans are hostile and they are opposed to us. They are hurting us. They're stealing from us. They're wronging us. They're in our way. They are our enemies. And so if you go with that definition, one more time, I'll read it. A person who is actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. If you go with that definition, won't we be enemies with everybody at some point in our lives? If you think about your family, if you think about your kids, if you think about your workplace, if you think about your spouse, if you're hostile or opposed to them during some season, some argument, some important decision, wouldn't you technically be enemies in that definition? So here's what I really want to unpack for the duration of the sermon today is who was Jesus' enemy really? Because it wasn't the Roman government, it wasn't the Jews, it wasn't all of these people who turned against him and towards the end of his ministry, almost everybody was against him. So who was Jesus' enemy for real? Let's keep reading to unpack it. Matthew 27, verse 11, goes like this. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, so this is the Roman governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus, I mean, catch this, he doesn't even really answer. He just throws it back at him and says, you have said so. You upset so. That's the only thing Jesus says in this, in this situation. Jesus replied, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate, so Pilate is the governor, asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. So Pilate, the governor, is looking at Jesus. He says, aren't you, aren't you the king? I mean, catch that. Here he is in a position of power and authority. He is governor. He is the, the de facto king of the land. And he looks at Jesus and he says, are you a king? Are you a king? Tell me, the real king, are, are you a king? Jesus doesn't even answer. He doesn't even entertain it. But then look at this, uh, verse 18, four verses later, this is describing Pilate. It says, for he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. It was not a secret that Jesus was innocent. It also was a sham, seeing different witnesses that the Jewish leaders presented who weren't lining up. It was just a fake trial. It was held in the middle of the night. They convicted him. They decided Jesus must die, and they treated the Roman government as their tool of choice. They're saying, this is who we're going to use, and the Roman government, the governor, and then the Roman leaders knew it but they were indifferent. They were passive. They were okay with it. 
So let's fast forward and see what happens. Verse 27 here, it says, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium. The praetorium is like the living quarters. It's like the barracks. So he took him into the, the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. It describes a centurion, so likely there were a hundred soldiers involved. They stripped him. And they put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and they took the staff and struck him on the head again and again and again and again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. How can you do that to somebody? I mean, can we just remove, remove ourselves from the story just for a second? Because uh, a lot of us, if you grew up in church or if, if you're familiar with the story, you, you've read this before, you've heard this before, a lot of you probably know this before. But I, I just want to ask, like, on a humanity level, could you ever do that to somebody? How, how can someone else then be in that position and do that and strike someone? I mean, where you see blood, where you see bruising, where you see skin opening, when you, when you twist together a crown of thorns and you jam it on their head and they're weeping. I mean, I, how can you do that to someone when looking in their eyes and seeing what is happening? How, how can you do that? And, it, and the scary thing I, I want to share with you, I feel like it's important to share today, it's not that hard to get there. It's not that hard for us to act like the Roman soldiers in other contexts of our lives against who we, we would define as our enemies. Here's number one. Let me show you this. Uh, number one is this. We dehumanize people. We dehumanize people. I think it's so easy for the Roman centurion, so the leader of a hundred company, right? A company of a hundred men. It's so easy for him and it's easy for a hundred men to treat Jesus the way he was treated because they just stripped him of his humanity. He was no longer a person. He was no longer a man. He was no longer somebody's son or a father or a child or whatever. It, it, they stripped all of his humanity. Anything that would make somebody human, they stripped him. So the personhood of Jesus, there was no longer relationship. There was no longer identity. Jesus became an object. And an object of their wrath. It was like, man, things that they wanted to make right. You could almost see them playing things out. Like, man, I'm so sick of these Jews, and so I'm going to hit and hit and hit, and I'm going to spit, and I'm going to mock, and I'm going to embarrass, and I'm going to strip. You can see how they could get there because this isn't a real person. This isn't a real person. Here's number two, you demonize them. So you don't just strip them of their humanity, but you actually, you, you put them on the other side. You decide, you put yourself in the role of judge and you say they're evil. I think we do this a lot. Just look at any presidential election that we've had over the last 20 years. You look at, uh, I was thinking about this too, the... Uh, the GameStop and AMC and all of this Wall Street's bets. I mean, when, when they start declaring war on Wall Street, it's, it's, we're not talking about people. We're talking about things so broad and so obscure and so far away that they are the enemy. We do this. I do this right now. March Madness. 
You know how stupid this is? I, I was staying up late last night. I was watching all these games. I've made a bracket. I invited a bunch of our team on it, so a bunch of different churches and church staff. I said, hey, let's do this. Let's compete together. I'll pay for a Jimmy John sub for the winner. I want to win my own Jimmy John sub. So, I mean, it's funny how in my mind, everybody else now just became the enemy. That's one, uh, that's one, one I guess, comparison. Think about this, though. Uh, if you want to see grown men cry, watch March Madness. It's at the end of every game. I was watching one last night. They, they start going at it, team A versus team B. It doesn't matter who. Pit them against each other, and no longer are they playing a sport for competition or for fun. They are playing to destroy their enemy. And it starts getting dirty, and it starts getting chippy, and isn't it a surprise that blood starts coming out? There was one game I was watching last night that was delayed for like minute on minute on minute on minute because the ref is walking around the floor pointing at all the blood spots that they have to clean up. Don't you wonder the blood spots we could see relationally among people in our world, in our country, or in our context, what we would see? Are are we actually able to see the woundedness and the brokenness of people who we've considered enemies or just treated as enemies? If we could see the after effects, the shedding of blood, the breaking of relationships, the the upbringing or unearthing of deep-seated brokenness in people's lives, if we could see the effects, would it change how we... how we treat people or how we see people. Here's the last one I think that we often do, and this is how the soldiers could treat Jesus like that, is they identify him as the enemy. So you strip him of his humanity. He's no longer a relationship to anybody. You demonize him, you play the role of judge, and you say you're evil. And then you draw a line in the sand and you say we're on one side and you're on the other and you are the enemy. I tell you what, we've done that in our country. We've done that in our history. It doesn't matter. Pick people groups that are on opposite sides of one another. I don't even have to give you examples because you're probably thinking of them right now. We do this all the time. And it wreaks havoc and destruction and brokenness. So as we do this, I mean, isn't it funny or isn't it true? It's very difficult to dehumanize someone when you call them by name. It's very difficult to dehumanize or even demonize someone when you listen to what they say. I mean, I just couldn't help but think, you know, here's Jesus getting whooped on. He's getting beat to a pulp and he says nothing. How many people or people groups do we draw conclusions about for which we never hear a word from their mouths? It's easy to demonize someone, to make someone an enemy when we never hear their voice. I think about riots, I think about social media, I think about divorce, I think people who cheat, who lie, who steal. I mean, it's so funny. We have so much more in common with the Roman government and the Roman military than I wish was ever true. So why didn't Jesus declare them his enemy? Why didn't Jesus say, I've had it with you. It's over. You're you're mocking me. You're making fun of me. You're beating me. I'm the son of God. We're going to do a role reversal here. Why, Why didn't Jesus do that? Jesus didn't do that because they weren't Jesus' enemy. 
The Roman government was not his enemy. The Roman guards were not his enemy. The Jewish people were not his enemy. The Jewish leaders were not his enemy. Those who were passive and uninvolved and not having to do anything, who were just watching from a distance, they, they weren't his enemy either. Who was Jesus' enemy? Satan. Jesus has had one enemy, and it's the same enemy throughout the entire scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, started in Genesis chapter 3, and what Jesus declares in Revelation is, I will have victory over him. He is my enemy. Stumbled upon this quote not too long ago, but I, I couldn't figure out who the author was. I was looking and looking and looking, and it says this, we should not treat other people as our enemies, but rather as victims of our enemy. This is how Jesus saw the people who were whooping him towards the end of his life. This is how Jesus, he did not see them as the enemy, people who were hurting him, people who were opposed to him, people who wanted nothing to do with him, people who believed differently, who were inherently different. Jesus was the son of God. And he's looking at humanity who's crucifying him. And he said, they aren't my enemy. They're victims of my enemy. As he's hanging on the cross, he prays his prayer and he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus never saw us as people, his enemies. He always saw us as victims of our enemy. So if we are followers of Jesus, if we are to be like him, people are not our enemies enemies. People are not our enemies. They are our mission field. Look what happens. Matthew 27, verse 50. It says this. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he's been on the cross now for six hours. He cries out in a loud voice and he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Think about that for a second from the perspective of a Roman guard. People you buried, people who maybe have hung on that cross before Jesus, people, people who were dead and buried are walking around and you recognize them. That's terrifying. Dead people, it's like, it's like the walking dead. Remember that TV show? Can you imagine being involved and you see Jesus and he gives up his spirit and all of a sudden dead people are walking around? That throws you for a loop. You're going to come to different conclusions about who Jesus was. Let's keep reading. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection. They went into the holy city, which is Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. When the centurion, that's the Roman guard, the official, the officer that was over 100 people, when the centurion and those who were with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake, the ground shook. When he saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified. That word, that phrase is so important. They were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. That same phrase is used a few chapters earlier. Jesus, before he's arrested, before he's handed over, before he has a fake trial, Jesus takes three of his closest disciples. He goes up on top of a mountain and it says, Jesus transfigured before them. That the humanity of Jesus disappeared and the godness of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus appeared and they saw him for who he was. And it says, God spoke from the cloud and he said, this is my son. And it says, the disciples were terrified. It's the exact same phrase. They were terrified, but they were changed. 
And that's the whole point of this entire message. It's the whole point of Jesus is is that when people see Jesus for who Jesus really is, they change. When people see Jesus for who Jesus really is, they change. One of the most impactful movies I've ever seen, and uh, it's one of those types of movies um, that like you watch, but like you don't want to watch again. You know what I'm talking about? Um, because it, it's so deep and it impacts you on such a deep level. Um, this movie, the name of it is called End of the Spear. And I saw it, man, maybe for the first time a decade ago. It's based on a true story that happened, I think the year was 1956. Uh, true story about five missionaries and their families that actually moved to Ecuador. They moved to the Amazon jungle in Ecuador, and one of them's a pilot. And so what they're trying to do, their whole purpose for life They uprooted their families, their kids, their sisters, their brothers. They relocated their families, went down to eastern Ecuador to live in the jungle to try and make contact with a group of people that had never had exposure or interaction with the outside world. They were called the Wadani people. And the Wadani people were a brutal, brutal, brutal people. Their motto for how they existed was kill or be killed. So every interaction that they would have with anybody from the outside world would result in war. I mean, in war and, and like a primitive type of war, they had spears, which is where they got the movie title, End of the Spear. And so these missionaries who just felt called, they, they believed so deeply that God had moved mountains to reach them and to build a relationship with them that they were called to do the exact same thing. So they went for a people group that many were afraid of, many would have looked at and said, they are the enemy. And they said, this is our mission field. So they move down there. They're trying to reach these people. They're flying overhead. They're trying to drop supplies down. They're doing everything they can to build a relationship. And one of the missionary sisters gets in with this tribe, with another woman in the tribe. They start building this relationship. They start sharing. And one of the key phrases she learned was this, and she shared it with with her brother and the other missionaries. And they said, I am your sincere friend. I'm not your enemy. So here's what happens. Um, They finally spot them. Um, Again, this is a people group that like nobody knows anything about because they're so hidden deep inside the Amazon jungle. And so they land the plane and they start this interaction. Like they come out and they're talking, the Wadani and then the missionaries. And they're, they're saying this phrase over and over. I'm your sincere friend. I'm your sincere friend. I'm your sincere friend. Well, something was miscommunicated. Something ended up going south. And long story short, the missionaries ended up being striked down in the middle of the river in the middle of the day, and they all died. And so it says like a, a military convoy came up later and recovered four out of the five bodies. And what, what the Wadani had done is they buried the airplane, and they disappeared. Well, the movie then tracks with the son of one of the missionaries that had died. His name was Nick. And Nick comes back crazy to one of the places of deepest pain for him and also ends up building a relationship with the Wadani people. Like what had happened actually opened the door for relationships to actually begin. And Nick builds a relationship with one of them in particular. His name was Minkayani. And so Nick and Minkayani become very close. Minkayani almost functioning as like a father figure role for Nick. Well, fast forward years and years and years. There's one day where Minkayani says to Nick, I need need to take you somewhere. And he takes him to the place. And Minkayani starts digging up some of the earth and he starts showing pieces of the plane, pieces of Nick's dad's plane that had been buried. 
And he looks at Nick and he says, Nick, I need to tell you something. It's been killing me. It's been weighing on me and you need to know. He said, Nick, I killed your dad. I did it. And he hands him his spear and he gets down on his knees and he puts his hands like this and he says, I took your dad's life, you take mine. Because that was the way that he knew. Death for death. Can you imagine being Nick in that moment? Dad was a hero. Dad was your idol. Dad, Dad died doing what he was called to do. And the man that you've come to love was the one that took him from you. And Nick looks at him, tears streaming down his face, and he says, you're right about death for death, but it's not your death that was required. It was Jesus' death. It was because of what Jesus did for you. My dad didn't lose his life. My dad gave his life for you, just like Jesus gave his life for us. And he said, I forgive you. Can you imagine the embrace? Can you imagine the significance? Minkayani ended up being extraordinarily influential in bringing the gospel to his own people. Who's your enemy? Who's opposed to you? Who wants to hurt you? Who is fighting you? Who, who has wounded you on such a deep level? You've drawn a line in the sand and you said, we, we can't cross anymore. I want to tell you there's death for death. Someone may have caused pain and brokenness and death for you or for, for in your life, but Jesus said, I can actually overcome that. I can erase the line. I can do for you what you can't even do for yourself. So these final two questions I just want to leave you with. The first one is this. Do you see people the same way Jesus sees people? The way Nick was able to look at his father's killer. Can you see people who have hurt you the way that Jesus sees them? Not as the enemy, but as victims of our enemy. If we're with Jesus, we share an enemy and that is Satan who uses death and sin and brokenness. And so we see people not as enemies, but as victims of our enemy. The second one is this. What are you willing to change about you or about your life to be more like Jesus? The cost is extraordinary. The impact and the effect is eternal. Would you pray with me? Father, it's hard talking about enemies. It's hard talking about people who have hurt us or wronged us or violated us or created damage or brokenness so deep within us that we've carried it for our entire lives since that event. Father, it's so difficult to carry that and then to think about you giving them a pass, to think about them getting off. And yet, Father, I'm just reminded that that is my story that I had wronged people, I had hurt people, I had broken things, I had broken relationships, and you looked at me and you gave me a pass. Not because of anything I'd done, but because of what Jesus did on my behalf. Father, I pray for this church right now. I pray for the people who are here in the service. I pray for those who are watching online or listening later. I pray that, that whoever it is we've decided as our enemy, maybe it's political, maybe it's neighborhood, maybe it's familial, maybe it's relational, maybe it's in marriage, what, whatever it may be, Father, I pray for the person uh, that's listening right now that knows who the enemy is. 
and yet maybe sees them now in a different light, not as their enemy, but as a victim of our shared enemy. Father, we thank you that through Jesus, you have already promised and declared a victory over Satan, over sin, and over death. And so there's nothing more that we need to do other than to steward what you have given us as representatives and ambassadors of you. Allow us to live in a way that points people to you. And Father, usher in the change and the redemption and the restoration that only you can bring. We love you. We trust you. And we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen.